Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. The best thing about the 2022 Australian election was the rise and rise of community independence. Without independence contesting and winning seats in Liberal heartland across the country, there would not have been a change in government and issues like climate change and transparency would not be central to Australian politics. So how did the independents do it? Today we speak to Katerina Gator, field organiser and volunteer coordinator for Zoe Daniels' campaign in Goldstein. We explore how Katerina, a community organiser and founder of Climate for Change, came to get involved in the Voices of movement and then became central to getting Zoe Daniels elected in Goldstein. She runs us through how the Voices of groups grew out of Indi in regional Victoria, spread to Warringah in New South Wales, and have now taken the country by storm. This is an honest account, much more complex and nuanced than some of the writings of this history to date. But what it makes clear is that when people get involved in democracy, democracy gets better. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Katarina, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you, Amanda. I'm so pleased to be here. Oh, we're pleased to have you. So my first question is, we ask it of everyone, is you're on a Changemakers podcast. So what kind of Changemaker are you? I would describe myself as a community builder and a community organiser. I think they can be slightly different. So I guess, you know, what I do and what I love doing is bringing people together over a shared purpose, helping them flesh out that purpose, see what's possible and helping them to achieve that through whatever support they really need. Excellent. And you do it, would appear to do it in a variety of spaces in the community, but also in, in electoral spaces, which is interesting. Yes. Well, I've done it in one electoral space. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're first. Yes. (laughs) And we are going to get to that story in a little bit. Okay. So you're a community builder and a community organizer. I'm intrigued by the difference that you see between these two words, which I'm sure you'll unpack. But part of, uh, part of what I'm interested in is, so why? Why have you chosen such a, a, a novel and somewhat challenging path? Why is that what you're doing with your life? Where did, what, came, what, what influenced you to, to make that choice? Yeah, I was, I was actually thinking about it and realized thinking back on my childhood, actually, I remembered that throughout primary school and probably high school, I was always coming up with new clubs and trying to get my friends to join clubs, all sorts of clubs. I don't really remember what most of them were. There was an environment one, I'm sure about that. So I think part of me has always just had a very innate need for community and to share. Like I've realised as I've grown older how much community and sharing everything is to me. A shared life really is a meaningful life for me. Do you have a sense of where that that value comes from? Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't really because I can't I can't say that that was something I really had. I feel actually when I um when I moved to where I live now 
which is in the inner west of Melbourne. And I, for the first time, really started to develop and connect with community. Um, that I really felt like, oh, this is what I've been looking for all my life. This is this is who I am. This is what I, I've wanted. So I can't say that I really had it growing up or, or even necessarily had an example of it to follow. But somewhere, I mean, look, we all yearn for it, right? I mean, yeah, a longing, a longing for <laughs> that kind of yeah, yeah. Oh no, I hear your sister. Like I, I see yeah, some of that in yeah. my own life. <laughs> but I think for me, it's it's. I've now recognised it as sort of that defining part of my life. I, I, I need to live somewhere. I need to live the type of life. I need my work. Like I need everything in my life to be about community and connecting with people, and and not just connecting, but sharing purpose, sharing resources, sharing everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So from a child, you're setting up these clubs, you're trying to create some of it, but you, I think you started to mention that when you started to find it, like do, how, did that, mm-hmm. how did that early interest in this idea of community turn into how you were going yeah. to live your adult so, life? I think the other thing that came up for me pretty early on was um, climate change. I remember in primary, grade six, watching behind the news, learned about climate change for the first time. You know, I like I literally, if I think about that moment, I have this bright light in my mind. It felt like a real light globe moment. Maybe I just stepped outside after the dark room. <laughs> Maybe that was it. But, you know, it feels very much like a light globe moment in my life. And I felt very much a need to go out. And I mean, my obvious conclusion at that point at being 12 years old was, well, clearly no one knows about this or else we'd be doing something about it. Um that's right, because that's how we change the world. As we tell them so the idea, I, you know, started talking about it as much as possible. Um, but so, I, you know, I sort of feel like community organising and climate were even at twelve. What I knew I wanted to do, except I didn't know that that was even something you could do back then. And I sort of took a, a fair detour over my teenage and early adult life. I did well at school back then. If you did well at school, you did law or medicine and I wasn't science. So I did law. I did a lot of (laughs) human rights and sort of uh, community development stuff there, I guess. Got involved in some of the refugee communities here in Melbourne. So that's that's a detour. I won't go into it, but probably a big turning point for me was reading Climate Code Red which is, for those who don't know, a pretty seminal book on climate um, that was written around 2007, I think 2006. And, you know, like a lot of people in Australia, I read that book and just, you know, I felt like I'd been hit by a meteor. I just, you know, I literally felt like I'd had the wind knocked out of me. I just remember spending six months crying. Um, You know, just like I remember, you know, sort of walking down the street to go shopping and getting to the supermarket and realising I was sobbing and I remember waking up in the middle of the night one time just and my cheeks were wet because I'd been crying in my sleep. You know, it was so overwhelming and for a long time I felt really debilitated actually. And then I sort of, you know, the key moment for me was asking myself, you know, have I, well, have I given up hope? Is everything, you know, is this the end? Is, Is there no reason to hope? And instantly I said no like I I just I could not say yes to that question and sort of knowing that I hadn't given up hope knowing that I still had hope even if I didn't know exactly where that hope lay or what was going to deliver the outcome that I was hoping for just the fact that I had hope meant that I could lift myself out of that and I knew that because I hoped I had a moral responsibility to do something about that hope that um, I, you know, I really felt in that moment that I had to just do anything I could to do something about climate change. So yeah, the, the answer, you know, what, what that was, was a much harder thing to work out. And I think like a lot of people I've seen in the climate movement who have that moment, I just did everything I possibly could. You know, I joined every single group. I was at every single protest. I discovered permaculture at the same time. And, um, I guess this is where I had my first experience of really community building and organizing is that a few of my friends in the local area started a permaculture group called Permaculture Out West. And I, particularly, you know, the gardening side of that was good, but I really loved the community side of it and um, bringing people together. And we actually led a, ran a small campaign to save a piece of land in our local area. And that's when I sort of, sort of, I guess I really got fixed on this 
idea of community and and saw the power of when you bring people together and you work something out together in your work, you know, or everyone doing something different, you can actually make a difference. Um, but I also knew that permaculture, I just I didn't feel that the sort of actions I was taking on an individual or local level were ever going to be enough <laughs> and that really we needed system change and that system change needed, you know, changes up at government level and, you know, that's where I sort of started to focus more on activism. And then I started to feel this frustration because I'd be going to every protest, every sort of activity and it just felt like it was the same people turning up you know we weren't really getting anywhere we'd occasionally have a small win but we'd always have way more losses and I didn't I you know in the permaculture sector and and all of that other area I could see all these people that I knew who cared but they were never going to come to a protest and I was frustrated that I didn't feel that the movement that I joined in the environment movement was really growing or reaching the people that it could and should be reaching. And, you know, I now realise I was getting frustrated that they were mobilising and not organising. <laughs> um, and I realise now that there were a lot of other people in the movement who are also feeling the same way. And, you know, since then there's been a lot more community organising and a real push for that deeper engagement. But, yeah, that frustration sort of, you know, to cut a long story short, I guess the other deep, dark secret I have is that when my oldest son was six months old, I had sold Tupperware for six months. Yeah. Oh, a skill um, though. That's a skill. To try and make ends Wacky, you know, but actually, a very, very we could have a whole skill. other conversation about <laughs> Tupperware um, and the role it played in women's liberation and, mm. you know, but it is, it's it's basically selling stuff by community building. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, later on when we started to use that model, um, I, you know, and I actually brought in someone from network marketing to mentor me, I realised that all the skills that they use in network marketing are exactly, it's just community organising. They just use different words and they have a different purpose. But it's very much the same thing. It's very interesting. But anyway, that's aside. So, yeah, to cut a long story short, I had this crazy idea that we could use the Tupperware party model, which is basically parties in people's homes and at the end of each party the host asks everyone in the room to host another party so you create this network of people all having parties in their homes. And instead of using it to sell plastic, we could use it to sell climate action and we could engage people who would never think of themselves as activists and get them to start taking the sort of political um, actions that we need to create the system change we need. I just want to just dwell on this for a second. So to me, it's very interesting. You've gone from being interested in climate change and not knowing what to do, actually like distraught at the fear but not knowing what to do, seeing that there was hope, throwing yourself at everything. Yeah. And then like in that journey identify these two, I don't know, two ends of a continuum, one of which is activism, you know, that's how we do systemic change. We've got to, you know, using the word activism to sort of describe that bigger sort of small p political transformation but also this everyday Involvement, like the everyday person who, who, and and the, the the both sides of that dichotomy or that that continuum both care about climate, but they don't talk to each other and they don't do stuff with each other, and then you've decided to kind of bridge the gap by creating something where people were at in the home as a space to be able to explore the system change. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and maybe, you know, the more I think about it, that's sort of what I love. And I think one of the things, you know, another bugbear of mine is, you know, how divided we are or how we divided we think we are. And, you know, I just, and and how quickly people are to judge in other people. Um, when I, you know, I, I, I feel passionately and I think the, the social research backs up that we have a lot more in common with everyone than we think and the more we find those pieces in common um the better society is the better we are the better outcomes we get from government like all of that is really you know backed up by social research so I think that's always been something instinctive to me and probably does come from both of my parents who I think have have taught that idea of empathy and compassion and a common humanity my dad wrote a book called a common humanity <laughs> <laughs> You know, that, that's definitely come from my parents. But, yeah, anyway, we I, I had that crazy idea um, and I convinced a few friends in it 
to sort of believe in it. And we met for a while in a pub trying to make it happen. And then at a certain point, I just realized that, you know, we, if, if, if this was going to really work, it needed a, it needed a full-time commitment. So I, um, one day I just quit my job and you were a lawyer and you quit your job. Oh no, I wasn't actually, I was working for Environment Victoria then. I didn't actually ever practice law. Yeah. So by that stage, that's another story, but I, yeah. And I loved working for Environment Victoria and I think they, they do great work. So it was a really hard, hard decision in a way to, to leave that job, but in a way it wasn't a decision at all. It just, I just felt compelled. It, it, you know, I, I felt like there was a, a need that needed to be filled and I knew that it needed full-time commitment. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. And so what was it called and what did you do? Like tell us a little bit about. So climate for change. And, um, I mean, our mission was to create the social climate in Australia. It, it still is. Climate for change still exists. I just don't work there. So it's it's great. The social climate in Australia for the action that we need on climate change. And the theory of change was that people make they change their hearts and their minds and they commit to action when they have a two-day two-way dialogue with people that they trust. So our work was about more than just this Tupperware party model. We did other things to help people have conversations with their networks to get them active on climate. But the main work that we did was that we turned the Tupperware party model into a program that when we did our impact report um, a couple of years ago, We'd been running for three years and I think we had managed to engage over 10,000 people in these sort of deep two-hour conversations in people's homes. 10,000 people? Yeah, over 10,000 people over three years. So it was pretty phenomenal. Like I haven't actually come across another program that has been able to engage so many people so consistently and so deeply over such a long period of time. Um, I think compared to door knocking or phone banking, I think it's about three to four times the number of people that you engage per volunteer per session. Um, and obviously it's like it's a two-hour deep engagement with your friends in your living room as opposed to a sort of 10-minute conversation with a, a stranger on a a doorstep. So it's a really, really powerful model. And I think, you know, over 50% of the people that came had never engaged with an environmental or climate group before. We, we sort of segmented our audiences and we were, our report showed we were reaching the audiences that we were looking to and that each of the, uh, over the majority of people would shift segments over that period. So they would, they would become, they would actually not just become more aware of climate change, but they'd actually shift from passive to active or skeptical to committed or, you know, those sorts of things. So that was, yeah, really exciting and rewarding. But I think the last election was pretty tough. And I felt Winning after that. 2019 Australian. Yeah, sorry, the 2019 election. Yes, not not the last one. The last one was also tough, but in a different way. Um, but yeah, the 2019 election, I think after that, I just felt like a lot of people really deeply exhausted. And I could feel that I just, I was really struggling to provide that leadership that I felt the organisation needed long term. And I and I think one of the things I'd learned from permaculture at West actually was we'd done really great work. We'd built this great community. But when those of us who started it moved on to other things, it didn't disappear, but it really lost its momentum. And um, no one else was really, we hadn't done the succession planning and we hadn't sort of built others up to take over. So at that point in time, I started talking to the board about how do we, how do we set things up so that I can step away and the organisation doesn't need me anymore um, and we find the right people to take it over. So that, you know, that was a good two-year process. But in March last year, I stepped away as CEO and I had intended to take a break. The other thing I had, you know, I guess the other thing that came out of the election for me was... And this is where I think I differed a bit from the climate movement at the time. I haven't sort of been involved in their strategic discussions for a while, but after the election, they seemed to move away from electoral politics, that people were talking about, well, we need to engage differently. It's not electoral politics that we need to do. Whereas I felt very strongly that actually, no, it was still about electoral politics. It's just that we had created a climate election. The problem was that we hadn't made climate the key issue in the electorates that decided the election. Mm. And there were two options for us now. One is was to go really deep into those electorates, those marginal electorates where it wasn't an issue and make climate an issue. But I knew that that required, you know, 
you know, if we were lucky, we could do it in three years, but it could take longer than three years. And it really needed a commitment that from the movement that wasn't there at the time. Or the other option was to make the electorates where climate is a big issue, electorates that decide the election. So make them more than marginal, you know, make the make sure that the LNP loses on climate. Because I, I really felt that, you know, that was the big problem, you know, until we break the impasse, until the LNP couldn't use climate as a wedge issue anymore, that we would never move forward. So go on, we need to hear, right, how, how you went from reacting to that conversation in the climate movement to then enacting that idea. I mean, part of it's just, you know, who you know and what you're hearing. I I, I mean, I'd been, you know, there's so many layers to this story. I'd, I'd actually always been really, I guess because they'd used the kitchen table conversation model, you know, I'd always felt really connected to Indi and Kathy McGowan's story and excited. And I actually have a photo of me in 2014 going to their conference after they... <laughs> on the election, like on how to do this in other electorates. So, you know, that that had always been something I'd been interested in and and I had always always had a, you know, which we can talk about later, but I'd always sort of felt uncomfortable with party politics anyway. So that that had always been something I'd sort of followed. Um, and maybe because of that I'd built up a friendship with a woman who lived in Warringah who had, um, and she'd contacted me when I was at Climate for Change about whether or not we could use that model in Warringah. And at the time, her thought had been get everyone to join the Liberal Party and pre-select someone else. But the Liberal Party changed its voting rules. And All right. <laughs> you had to be a member for two years to be part of pre-selections. <laughs> that was that couldn't work anymore. But she she had with her friends and you know, and things moved so quickly that they didn't use the climate for change model in the end. But she and her, you know, a few people had got together and started talking about how they could shake things up in Warringah and, well, the rest is is history. You know, she was one of the three people that got things going and got the movement to find an independent happening in Warringah and she was behind Zali's, you know, she was a key person behind Zali's campaign. So I'd kept in touch with her and um, I knew that she was starting to meet with people in other electorates and try and help them get similar things going in, in Sydney. And I met with all of the people meeting in Sydney and heard about what they were doing. Can I ask, to give people a, t- a time scale, when was that? Yeah. So I ended up spending Christmas, the Christmas before last in isolation because I'd just been in the northern beaches of Sydney. Oh, fun times, right. Yes. So it was just before Christmas 2020. And so I met with them and at the same time there was a supporter, one of our supporters at Climate for Change who lived in Goldstein, which is where I'd grown up. He, um, I knew he was very interested in in what they'd done in Warringah and I knew he knew Kirsty as well, my friend in Warringah. So when he decided to call a group together, even though I wasn't from the electorate, he invited me along and I was at the very first meeting of Voices of Goldstein, which was not called that at the moment. Well, it was a community connect, like what I'm, you know, you, you talk about the setting up clubs right from when you're young and it's that same kind of impulse that also is, saw you connect in here. It was yeah. individual relationships with yeah. people who you talk very much relationships and common interests and ideas. Yeah, so we, again... As a small group, we met for a few months, but I I could see, I, you know, talking to the groups in Sydney had been going a lot longer. I knew, you know, I knew that they all had someone working pretty much full-time who could volunteer full-time on what they were doing. They were putting the hours in that no one in our group had really the, the time or energy to give. We just weren't going to get where we needed to be. We just couldn't get that momentum going unless someone was prepared to commit that time. And I knew, unlike when I started Climate for Change, I, I did that for free for a long time, but I couldn't afford to do that anymore. But I, I knew they had a little bit of money that a donor had given them. It wasn't a whole heap, but I, I figured it was enough for me to to survive on. So I said, look, I'm leaving my job. How about I help? And the universe has provided you a new direction. <laughs> no, I was going to take a rest, but, you know, I could spend six months just helping you set up. And I, at that time, I definitely thought by the time we get to an election, there'll be someone else can take over. But yeah, uh, you know, yes, we 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 did. We got going, and we built a community, and we found a candidate, and I ended up working for that candidate as well. So Robbie Daniels, for those who don't know, who got elected, and it's been a pretty great result. So 
what we're going to do is we're going to go through some of these steps. Now, you're based in Melbourne. I'm not based in Melbourne. Plenty of our listeners aren't even based in Australia, let alone Melbourne, but they're very interested in um, what's happened with the rise of the independence, the community independence. So I want you to give us a take us to take us to Goldstein, like places in that space. What is it like? You know, what is the community like? What are the people like? What is that that space like that you had to had to organize in order to be able to and you know organize enough votes for for someone to be elected, which is so much more than just run a uh, an issue based campaign. What what is that place like, and and what was great about it, and what were the challenges you faced? Yeah, so I, I did grow up there and lived there for the first sort of twenty years of my life, but haven't been back there. I mean, I've been back there. My and my um, in laws still live there, but I haven't lived there for over twenty years. It's it, so it's one of Melbourne's wealthiest electorates, stretches from. Elstonwick through to Beaumaris for those who live in Melbourne. For those who don't, those are really the the real, it's, you know, there's an area called the Golden Mile. It's it's the beachfront properties around the bay, but also inland another, so it goes two suburbs inland basically throughout that stretch and sort of onto the other side of the highway. So in the north of the electorate, there's quite a strong Jewish community. And then inland, it's, it's certainly not, you wouldn't, call it struggling or anything, but it's not as wealthy inland. And it's actually quite geographically, it's quite a small electorate. It's much smaller than Warringah um, is or Indi, but there's still quite a bit of diversity um, in the types of sort of people living there, although probably um, racially it's, it's it, there's, you know, there's a fairly strong Chinese and Indian and, and Jewish community and, and some, you know, a few sort of Greeks and, and people in there, but it's probably less racially diverse than a lot of other parts of Melbourne, certainly where I live. So it's, it's you know, generally pretty, um, it's been liberal, it's voted liberal ever since Federation, even before it was Goldstein. It was, I think it was Balaclava prior to Goldstein, but it always voted liberal. I think people there are generally very entrepreneurial, business savvy, so that, you know, for that reason, they're sort of more conservative economically, but they're also generally pretty well educated and and privileged and have pretty progressive social views. So climate's been a big issue there for a long time. There has been a big, like it has one of the biggest local climate groups in the country, I'd say. And, you know, they, they strongly voted yes in the um, plebiscite for marriage equality. And, you know, there was a real sense that the electorate was getting very angry and I think actually one of the things that I noticed as I started talking to people there, there was a real sense that because people generally identified as liberal, actually the anger that they were, they felt it was their identity and being trashed through the mud as, you know, they saw, you know, they were really angry with Scott Morrison and, um, and sort of the way that he was treating our democracy. Integrity was a big issue as well. So I guess that's the landscape that, that made me feel like, okay, this is an area where something could happen. But at the same time, you know, people are very privileged and comfortable there and the idea of activism. <laughs> I mean, you need to change the language. <laughs> it's not. Well, we never called it activism. But, you know, the idea of getting out and talking to people about politics, knocking on people's doors, handing out flyers at train stations, that there were definitely pockets of people doing that. And interestingly enough, you know, from the very beginning, Voices of Goldstein, I think, attracted people from all political backgrounds. But it was, it tended to be the more left-wing people who were active on the ground. It took longer for people who were, who identified as liberal voters to, to come out and do those things, which they did in the end. And I think one of the things I loved about the campaign and that I, apart from winning, <laughs> was most rewarding. Good. You know, that was, that was pretty good. But one of the things that was most rewarding is at the end, how many people, you know, said, I've ne- I never thought that I'd be part of something like this. I never thought I'd do I'd never go door knocking I'd never meet with people and I've met so many people in my electorate that I never would have talked to before and so I saw so many people from different who I knew voted differently they didn't necessarily talk about how they'd voted but I sort of had had conversations so I knew though you're a Labor voter you're a Greens voter you're a Liberal voter you're a swinging voter and they'd all be chatting together and having great conversations and working together and I think that was one of the really exciting things about this campaign that it really did break down those divides and and sort of stop people from 
taking sides and instead came together and, and, and possibly got people out of their heads. Like it's one thing to be, I'm theoretically progressive and I'll talk to my friends about how progressive and I might even vote in a, in a referendum, but actually making a seat climate friendly and doing that work and, and walking the streets, you know, do, you know, meeting new people, all the, the experiences of doing that work, uh, like enacting <laughs> climate action rather than just talking about it, you know, that can bring people, I mean, it sounds like it brought that, that process of actually doing rather than just talking actually helped bring people together too. And also just even realise, you know, I think so, and it, the same thing happened to Climate for Change, you know, a big, what we realised a big thing at by creating space in people's living rooms was just that people realise other people care. That, I think we underestimate the power of that. And I remember hearing research when I was at Climate for Change that people don't act because they think nobody else cares. And when they realise that other people care, that's when we take action. So, yeah, really being able to, you know, I think that's the foundation for any community action is just realising that other people around you care and feel the same way that you do. It's incredibly profound. Yeah, and and now I've seen it in relation to an election everyone has noticed, but actually this kind of work, this community-based connectivity that you that you were doing at uh, Climate for Change, but that, you know, that others do in different forms of community organising around the place, it's actually building the foundations for something interesting because it's allowing people to see how other people care and that there is connection across the community. In a, yeah, yeah, there's real power in that. Okay, so you're there, you're working with a tricky community, you know, but but where there's a base of, of people who are interested and there's a level of anger, so a, a space that has some possibility. And um, you're there, wasn't initially called Voices for, for Goldstein, but, but a group has formed, you've quit your job, found a new job. Okay, so tell us what you did. How did you get the candidate elected? How did you find the candidate? How did you... And how'd you get yourself to the election campaign? Yeah, so we had the other tricky complication that we were we're in lockdown for most of it. And actually we're in and out of lockdown, which in some ways was trickier than being in lockdown because you never actually knew whether to completely pivot or, you know, and we planned so many events that every one of them ended up online. But each one of them had been during a point where we thought we could do it face-to-face. So, But basically, you know, we, we held monthly events Traditional things, built a website, built a mailing list, sent weekly or fortnightly updates, I can't remember. And whenever we could, we got people, we we got some T-shirts that said, our Independence Day is coming. (laughs) (laughs) Really baggy. And they were pretty horrible purple too, but... Um, and we, we've got people putting them on and walking along the beach and, you know, walking their dogs and chatting to people whenever they could, um... We didn't have, so I was listening to Nick Haynes on your podcast a little while ago and they they put an ad in the paper. There was no local paper in Goldstein, unfortunately, so we had to letterbox the whole electorate. We just, we we managed, managed to get enough people together and we just put, we printed out really simple flyers sort of saying who will be our community independent and letterbox there. Um, we also, you know, looked around as much as possible, sort of searched the lists of people with Orders of Australia. Or <laughs> we figured there must be some pretty powerful people, some pretty good people in the electorate. Um, and the other thing that was really, that really gave us a, a push was that um, one of our members knew Ian McPhee, who was the first member for Goldstein, and he was member of the Fraser government, and he endorsed our campaign. And I quickly sent that to all the papers and that got in the in the paper. And that's when we sort of, I guess, got our really big uptick in, in people starting to take notice. And the other thing that was really, really valuable that helped once Zoe stood was that we made welcome calls to every single person who signed up. So as soon as someone signed up to the mailing list, we had a team of volunteers who called them and just chatted to them about why they joined, who they were, what they were interested in doing, how they could help. And that, I mean, that had so many, you know, A, I think it really meant people took us seriously and they were really impressed. We had lots of stories about how that was how, what made people commit. It helped us identify who could do what. Um, and we also just heard people's stories and we understood how people felt. And I think that helped us tap in more to, you know, 
the zeitgeist and the electorate. And- Bringing that relationship stuff to a space. An electorate space is not used to that. You know, in, in political parties, you know, they just ask for donations and not much, you know, and you can join a branch or whatever, but it's not a relationship like what you're describing. You're describing a completely different culture um, being brought into the electoral space. Yeah, so that was that was fantastic. Bayside City Council, which was one of the local councils, had done an exhibition of 100 women of Goldstein, which was great. <laughs> um, and we actually, um, we saw Angela Pippos on there who um, is a former ABC sports journalist and thought, oh, she could be a good candidate. So we approached her and she got back to us. She said, no, look, my, my son's too young. I'm I'm not in I'm not up for running, but I reckon my best friend Zoe would be great. <laughs> um and so she organized a meeting she with um Sue who was our spokesperson um and and Sue and Zoe and Ange kept talking for a long time. I think that was back in July, I think, that we approached Angela and it wasn't till October that Zoe said yes. In 2021, I'm guessing. Yes, that's right. Um, At the same time, we were approaching other people. We were inviting people to apply and we had an actual application process and Zoe had to go through that process just as much as anyone else did. So there was a written application, an interview, a a mock press interview, um, which actually we, some of it, not all of it, but some of it we, you know, we consulted with Voices who were really helpful at the time. You know, we were well connected right from the beginning with them and with the other groups in Sydney and we were sharing ideas about, you know, how are you doing this, how are you looking for these people, what what questions you're asking your interviews. So we are all very different and everyone chose to do things differently but we certainly swapped notes and helped each other wherever we could. Yeah, yeah, you could learn, stand on their shoulders but there was going to be a distinctive approach no matter where you were, right? And so I'm, I'm presuming there was a, ma- a magical moment when Zoe finally said yes. Like, it was was there a, something that clinched it for her? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there were a few things, I think. One was that she did ask for some polling and we shared the cost of some polling with um, Climate 200, which by that stage had sort of said that they were um, interested in supporting candidates. They didn't support any of the voices groups, but they were, you know, going to support some candidates and they were willing to share the cost of getting some polling done to show that electorate, show that Goldstein cared about the issues of climate and integrity and the things that we were wanting the independent candidate to stand on. Um, so that came back really positively. So that that was, I think that helped. But the thing that got her across the line was that her, her son, who was 15 at the time, said to her, you know, mum, you've got a chance to do something for us and, you know, what? how you feel if in 10 or 20 years' time things are the same or they're worse and you didn't do this. And that's what clinched it for her. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I, I think that for me that, you know, that really shows that, you know, that I don't think people realise that all of all the women who stood in those seats, they really did it because they were asked to and they felt a responsibility to step up. It wasn't about them and their careers and their egos and I think that's that's really important. Yeah, I think it's it's really important. And also it's like, I mean, it is also true that all the community independents were women and that sort of, you know, knowing that, you know, even being a good parent, being a good mum is not enough to take care of your kids for the future if the world is surrounded by climate, is is engulfed in climate change, that actually being a being able to sort of create a, a space where your kids can thrive is, might just involve stepping beyond the fence and getting involved in these bigger questions. Yeah. It's inspiring. It's really inspiring. It's really yeah. inspiring. Yeah. And Zoe's um, maiden speech the other day, I think, tells that story really. It's worth listening to. Okay, people, everyone should go listen, listen to maiden speech. Yeah. So let's just moved to the, the election campaign, right? She ran a campaign. You ran, helped run the campaign. Tell us tell us about what it was like. I mean, part of me finds it fascinating because I, I really do see there's this sort of electoral politics thing going on and all the pressures and the culture of electoral politics. It's sort of nastiness and it's media and it's money and whatever. And then you've got all this social movement, community organising, community relationships, practices and values, and those two things meet in the community independence work, you know, in the, in the independence campaign. How did it play out? Like what were some of the tensions and stresses you noticed? Yeah, look, I think that's really 
true. And I think, you know, in some ways, we, you know, we were standing on the shoulders in many ways of, you know, what had been done in Indi and, and also Warringah. And I think, you know, the other dynamic there is that there's a narrative around what happened in Indi and Warringah, some of which is true, some of which I think, you know, <laughs> um, you know, like one of the things I think people assumed that the whole community would choose the candidate, whereas, in fact, that didn't happen in Indi until... Like it didn't happen with Kathy McGowan. It happened with Helen Haynes. But that was after, you know, two election cycles, over six years of the community really learning deliberative democracy. And when we spoke to Indi about the process and what we would do, they were actually very clear that until your community is ready for that bigger deliberative democracy process, don't try and get everyone to decide. <laughs> you know, it's got to be with a few, you know, the community decides on the sort of selection criteria and we had our values we had the things that we did through community consultation kitchen table conversations but we had a very small committee um that did make you know in the end made the decision although i, I think you know <laughs> so it would have been a top candidate for anyone and actually we had to keep it really secret you know we in the end it was leaked to the australian i think the day before zoe announced but right up until that point like for for a long long time it was only three of us who even knew that zoe was on you know being talked to we couldn't even keep talk we couldn't even tell the rest of the governance committee that she was wow. the one we were talking to um and then when we you know then a few a little bit before we did why do you keep it secret I mean, I don't judge it. I think it probably makes a lot of sense. but um, Because we were told that if it got out in the media that, you know, someone was thinking of running before they had had a chance to even decide, let alone set up their website, decide that on their platform, all of those sorts of things, then the opposition and the media would create their own narrative around that person and you wouldn't have control of your own story. You'd always be on the back foot. You'd always be defending rather than creating your own story. So, you know, that's that's one of the realities of electoral politics and media and stuff that, you know, doesn't easily fit with that idea of, you know, community <laughs> democracy. And we were that so that was quite tricky to navigate. But in the end, I think that idea of, you know, all we got buy in and agreement on all the key principles, all of the things and we and we presented the people. We we chose people. The decision makers came from, you know, we had someone who was 18 and someone, you know, up in their 70s or I don't, you know, exactly know how old, but, you know, we had all age ranges, um, genders, political spectrum, professions, really tried to make it as diverse as possible and, you know, got that buy-in and agreement from the community and agreed on the process with them and then, they were happy to delegate that decision-making. So that, that was one tension, I think. And then when the campaign evolved, I think, you know, you've got this, I mean, with Cathy, she actually was part of the original Voices group, whereas Zoe wasn't. Zoe came in to the group after it was well-established. But also I think you've got, for any politician, but particularly an independent, it's not just an issue or a campaign, it's them, it's their lives. I mean, Zoe was... She was a very, you know, well-known person, a journalist. If, if she didn't win, you know, she had to go back to journalism. She, You know, there, there was a lot she was putting on the line and putting herself solely in the, you know, in the community. You know, you're always sort of, I guess, having to work out what, what Zoe's campaign and what's her and what's, you know, making sure you're not, mis you're not, speaking out of line and misrepresenting her, but also allowing the community that sort of radical trust and being able to, you know, I think Nick, Nick was saying that they just let people go out and do whatever they wanted. <laughs> yeah. And in a way we did too. Like our volunteers did all sorts of things that didn't come from the campaign team or weren't even necessarily given an official tick of approval. But there was always that tension between, you know, just and even, and even just knowing, like I think, Thinking back to Indi, for example, that was, you know, they they sort of came in under the radar for so long. So they didn't have that level of scrutiny that our campaign had. I mean, we had The Age put a uh, put a journalist in Goldstein to report from Goldstein every single day. They had to have a story on Goldstein every day. Um, so we were constantly being watched and anything that the volunteers said or did could easily be picked up by the media and misconstrued. So 
at the same time, we knew that to run the type of campaign we wanted that was as big as we wanted, you you can't direct it. <laughs> it has to happen organically and people have to, you know, bubble up. <laughs> so I think, you know, how did we navigate it? It felt quite sort of unclear at the time. A bit, and I, I was always conscious of that tension, like how much do you say to volunteers that don't say that, make sure you say this, and how much do you let them go? And but what if they say something that's, you know, doesn't represent the campaign properly and gets picked up by the media? And how do you be different from a political party but still working in the under the constraints of an electoral system that creates that kind yeah, of yeah, and where you know that anyone is looking for you to misstep? Um, you know, it was it was that was tough. <laughs> what about money? Mm. What about the question of money? That's a big issue in politics. Yeah. So look, we. We were fortunate that Climate 200 announced very early on that they were going to support strong candidates that would stand on climate and integrity. In fact, in the end, so our campaign raised $1.4 million and Climate 200 wow. of that 400000 was Climate 200 and the other million was raised mostly locally. So, they, you know, they weren't a big proportion of the funding in the end, but I think one of the things that really helped and possibly, I don't know, you know, I think it helped Zoe make the decision to run, to know that she could run a strong campaign, that she wasn't going to be on the back foot, um, that there was backing there. So I think that was, and it also helped at the beginning. It takes money to raise money. (laughs) You need a website. Well, even in community organising, we say power equals organised people and organised money. If there is no money, it's hard to be able to do things. Yeah, and particularly, I mean, I think we'd all love it if you didn't need to spend that money to win. And I I hope that there's an opportunity in this parliament to fix that. But the reality was that we're in a system where you had to, we knew that in an electorate like Goldstein, which was very wealthy, you know, we were expecting... Tim Wilson to spend at least a million dollars. I don't know how much he spent in the end, but, you know, we we knew we would have to raise that kind of money to be able to just even just advertise as much as they would advertise. Like you, you have to, unfortunately. I'd lo- I think we'd all love it if they would change that and the, I'm sure all the independents would support changes to that, but unfortunately that's that's what we had to do. But, you know, in the end a lot of that money was raised and sometimes, you know, a lot of it was smaller, you know, $100 donations, which may not be tiny, but, you know, aren't huge really um, when you're looking at some of the money donated. So a lot of it was community donations as well. But even with all these difficulties, the pressure of the media, the challenges of money, the difficulties of balancing out the sort of decision-making processes in the campaign, it it worked. Hooray! What do you think it means for Australian politics now that so many community independents have been elected? Like, what do you think this now means? I should just say the other challenge is that pretty much no one on any of the campaigns had worked on a political campaign before. So we were all, all, you know, building the plane as we flew it, taking everything up as we went along. Um, That was possibly the hardest part of it all. What it means, look, I mean, you know, the reason I went into this originally and I do think it's really shifted things is... I think, you know, at the moment it really makes it hard for the LNP to use climate as a wedge issue now. I mean, they can keep doing that and it looks like they're going to keep trying doing that, but if they do, they won't win back those seats Um, and it means that they are going to have to win enough of the marginal seats to make up for those, which is not impossible and I think as a movement we have to be really, I still think it's really important to be taking climate into those marginal areas, but, you know, I think it it does make it, Hopefully it helps break that impasse and we can keep working on that to mean that climate no longer has to be a wedge issue anymore. You know, whether or not it's going to break down the two-party system, I don't know, but I do think it shows that politics can be done differently. And I think what I, you know, going back to what I see in Goldstein, people are engaged in, you know, at Climate for Change I realised pretty early on that it wasn't that we had to convince people that climate change was an issue. What we had to do is convince people that engaging as citizens in our democracy was important and could make a difference. And I feel like that we've, you know, in a whole lot of electorates now, people have seen that and hopefully other people in other electorates are seeing that too. I think that's a really important legacy. I think 
cynicism with democracy actually is really, really damaging. So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of things we could talk about, about the future of Australian politics and whether this is going to break down the party system and stuff. And that's a whole other discussion. But I think engaging people back in democracy is a really important legacy. Oh, a huge legacy. And because, you know, and like what you described earlier on in the podcast where some after 2019 in the climate movement turned away and said, we've just got to do corporate campaign, we've got to do something else, this electoral politics is too, is not working. And in in actually showing it can work, what we need to do is a broad-based community campaign, a few activists who keep turning up at the same rallies, that won't cut it. But if we can learn and apply the broad-based community organising kind of work that you had learnt to do at Climate for Change, apply that to electoral politics, actually electoral politics is a space for progressive, more progressive politics because it can, because it's a space for people. And you've not just said that, you've been part of doing it which is pretty, you know, it's one thing to, you know, we, could, we, we need to walk our talk <laughs> some of the time and you walk the talk. Uh, it's spectacular. Look, you know, it's been so good to have you on this on this podcast. We should, I think we probably have you on for another one in, in maybe a f- six months to a year's time where we can evaluate what the independents have done based on their performance in Parliament, because I'm sure everyone is watching. I know I'm watching to see how what sort of impact they can make on a day to day basis. But thank you so much for for coming on Changemakers and sharing all these stories with us. No, thank you so much. I love the podcast. So it was an honour to be invited. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. And this is Series 6, so there's plenty to look at in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. And check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.